Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, a part of Stroke Focus. I'm here today with Patricia Geist-Martin, who's a Ph.D. and a professor in the School of Communication at San Diego State University, and her research examines narratives and the process of storying identity, voice, ideology, and control in organizations, particularly in health and illness. She's also published five books, and she's in the process of finalizing a manuscript. So she is one of our guests today, but also we have Bill Torres. Bill celebrated the fact that his stroke occurred 17 years ago when he was 68 and still working every day to improve, even though most people see him as someone who has made a complete recovery. Bill had a career as a teacher, a salesman, and an executive in two different food companies. And now his life is devoted to helping other strokes survive to be inspired recovery. So hello, Trisha. Hello, Bill. Welcome to the Hand in Hand Show. Thanks for having us. So just real quick, Bill, you had your stroke 17 years ago. And I know that there's been a lot of progress in recovery in those 17 years, but how was it for you at that time? Well, what happened, I spent um, like four days in ICU, and then next thing I know, I was in recovery and rehab, and I spent a couple of months in, uh, well, a month in the hospital and rehab, and then they let me go. Uh, I was in a wheelchair for four months, and I decided I was going to do my own rehab, and so I started working out three hours a day, and I did that for three years, never a day off. And uh, I'm uh, people say I'm fully recovered, but I'm still working at it. I work out six days a week now. I get one day off. The thing is, I made it. The title of the book is Falling in Love with the Process. And what I did, I had to fall in love with doing that. And so... I have to do it because I'm in love with it. I have to I have to work out. If I don't work out, it's like starving or without your love because that's my new love is working out. I was uh, uh, heavily involved in racquetball also. I worked for Wilson Sporting Goods, and I signed professional players and amateur players. So I was playing before my stroke. I was playing four hours of racquetball or paddleball every day. And in order to get better, you have to practice. And I knew in order for me to get better as a stroke survivor, I had to practice. And like most most athletes, let's take uh, Tony Gwynn. I don't know if you know who Tony Gwynn is. He was a famous player here at San Diego's uh, professional team, San Diego Padres. And he was one of the best hitters of all time. But his last day, his 19th year, and his last day, his last game, he still practiced. And so I got that in my head, and I've got to keep practicing. So I'm I'm practicing, you know, every day. Yeah, I think that's very true. I know repetition or practicing is key to my recovery because – you, you have to train your body to do what you want it to do again, or at least me, and it sounds like that's what 
you for were everybody. You are now 17 years out, and you, that means you are, what, 85? 85, yes. Wow. And let me tell you, folks, I can see him. You can't. I don't. I wouldn't know that he was 85. I would think he was much younger. But uh, let's Thank introduce. You. Yeah, let's introduce uh, Patricia, professor in the School of Communication at San Diego University, and she has published these five books. And one of them is "Falling in Love with the Process: A Stroke Survivor's Story." And then she has another one that's in the works right now. So, Patricia, tell us about what you do and, and maybe even how you and Bill met. You know, I've been a professor for many, many years. I got my Ph.D. back in 84 at Purdue, and I taught at the University of Hartford in Connecticut and then the University of Hawaii in um, in Honolulu, and then I ended up here in 1990 at San Diego State, and I've been there ever since. I'm actually just phasing into early retirement, um, but the whole time that I've been a professor, I've been very, very interested in stories that people tell. Uh, for me, communication is key to both our health and also for our recovery from illness. Uh, we don't do it alone. We communicate with other people. We communicate with our families. We communicate with providers. And so for me, it was very interesting to understand the stories that people tell because that's how they construct their meanings for what their illness is and how they construct the meanings for what their recovery is or what they need to do. And so I've been studying this in through um, observation and also through interviews. So I'm a qualitative researcher who really records people's stories and then really analyzes what it is that we can understand from their stories that helps us to better understand improved ways of communicating with each other to help each other, how caregivers help people recovering, how people recovering talk with their caregivers and tell them what they need. So uh, I just find it absolutely fascinating, and, I, and, and that's been my life's work. Um, I met Bill. I met him at Lake Murray here in San Diego. I was working out with a group of my friends. There were like seven or eight women, and we're all working out. And Bill was feeding the ducks, and that's another part of his story that we can talk about later is he feeds the ducks at a lake, at Lake Cholas. He used to feed them at Lake Murray. And we saw him there, and he came up and started chatting with us, and um, he told us that he was a stroke survivor. And I looked at him, sort of like you're looking at him right now, Cam. He just doesn't look like, you know, he's as old as he is or that he's uh, recovered from stroke. And, and he told me he was severely paralyzed and how long it took him. And we just hit it off right away. And I said, oh, Bill, would you come to my class? Would you, would you come to San Diego State and talk to my health communication class about this experience? And he said he would. And he's been to the campus many, many, many times. And it's really great. I have all of these people come to my class. I have doctors. I have nurses. I have midwives, I have hospice workers, I have so many people. But who's their favorite speaker? Bill Torres. Yeah. I love him. 
They love I've him. I've paid her to say that. He, he just has a way of speaking, and he doesn't come with any notes, and he doesn't have a, a plan. He just comes in and tells a story, and the students just love him. And I think he's he's funny, too, because he'll pull out, because he, he graduated from San Diego State, and he pulls out his degree, his little, you know, student ID card, and they're like, wow, you know, they can't believe it. So then what happened? Well, Bill and I, we meet for breakfast. He comes to my class, and he says, you know, you ought to write a book about me. And I'm like, oh, Bill, I've got so much on my plate. I, I really can't write another book. And I'm sorry, but he'd go, you better write it soon or I'm going to be dead. Oh, yeah. so, I know. So I'm like, okay, 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 we'll write a book. I was like, I don't want to do this alone. And one of my all-time favorite, very competent students was Sarah Parcel. She got her master's in our program. She went on for his, her PhD at Ohio University. And now she's a professor at Rollins College in Florida. And she is all about advocacy. How do we become an activist and advocate for our health? And that's her area. So I said, you really love doing this because after his stroke, Bill really devoted his life to advocacy. And so she came on board. And what we did is we interviewed Bill, gosh, at least 20 times, person to person before COVID, thank goodness. Um, but we also interviewed all this group of providers, people who worked with him in rehab, nurses who were there with him when he had his stroke. And then we interviewed a whole collection of his friends, friends who were there for him, who really came to his aid and are still friends, friends that have been friends for 50 years. So we had this multitude of interviews, we had them transcribed, and then Sarah and I sat down over the course of a year and a half, almost two years, analyzing these interviews and figuring out a way to write this book. So the book is very engaging because it intermixes, it braids together Bill's strokes of story with his life story from the time he was born in San Diego until where he is now as an advocate. So I probably told you more than you needed to know, but it's just a wonderful story. And Bill and I, I mean, we finished the book and we just still figure out ways to get together and have breakfast or, you know, just chat on yeah. the phone. So, Bill, why did you want to, to have her write a book about you? What was, what was, uh, was it to tell your story, basically, or was it more to help others uh, learn that you can move forward? A combination of both, because when I would speak to Rotary, when I would speak to, to different groups, People would say, why don't you write a book? And I just, uh, you know, said, yeah, maybe I will. One day, one day, one day. And uh, I realized I couldn't write. It was too emotional. So I nagged uh, Patricia. And not only is she a good speaker, but she is one of the finest listeners that you would meet. And that's a, that is a skill, listening. And uh, so we decided uh, she, you know, I twisted her arm, 
and she said, yes, I'll do it. So she and uh, Sarah got together and did the interviews and sat down with a, oops, there you go again. You're and, uh, we can yeah. still hear you. Oh, okay. So, oh, there you are. What, what's happening here? So anyway, it, it, I didn't know, you know, what it was going to be like. Uh, I just talked, and they listened, and it was wonderful because it got me to purge everything out of my system. But I do want it to, be, to reach people to show that they can survive and they can be better. And they, and when I would meet people in at, at when I had the stroke, when I started at doing advocacy, I was able to go into hospitals. The, the therapists would call me and say, come speak to so-and-so. And I always said to them, the, the survivors, that they must speak to three survivors when they get out, and which has worked out real well because there's a big chain out there of people doing advocacy work. So I was really happy with the book. Uh, I try not to read about me because I know about me, but I, I, I just I just want to get this book out because I think it can help people. And it's a great story, too. You know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, every survivor's story is unique. Absolutely. But it's up to us to have a more positive attitude um, seem to do better, and I think they, that reading all of this is a big help. One of the things I want to highlight is when you said the word can, you really made a, a, a said it with more force, and I wanted to highlight that because this is something that I've said a lot. Um, I had uh, a, a dentist who practiced dentistry one-handed. Now, he didn't have a stroke, but they had done brain surgery, and the second time they did brain surgery, his teeth oh. lost his left side. He taught himself how to be a dentist. Again, uh, one-handed. Uh, I don't know how he did that because I was in the dentist the other day thinking about this. Again, how did he do that one-handed? But anyway, he did, and he was very successful. He had several different planes that he'd had over the years that he flew. He played golf. He talked about other stuff that he did, but he said the one thing you have to do is you have to take the word can't out of your vocabulary. So I wanted to highlight that because you really said can, um, and, and that's true. If you change your mindset and go from can't, do this to I can do it, you will make far more progress than than saying can't. Or at least that's how I take it. But um, so the, the fact is that you worked really hard and that contributed a lot to your recovery. Is there something else you feel that maybe made your recovery even better? Well, what, what made it better was I had a lot of support from people, and they didn't see me as uh, disabled. They saw me as just Bill, you know, fun-loving, nice guy, and so they didn't treat me any differently because, you know, when the first day I got out of the hospital, 
I didn't want to go in public. I didn't want people to see me, you know, all paralyzed on one side in a wheelchair. I wanted to just go home and hide. Right. And so they didn't treat me like that. They didn't see me just because I was in a wheelchair that I was disabled. But uh, I don't know if you got any of those looks that you think people are looking. They're probably not looking at you, but uh, <laughs> you just feel like you're the center. You know, the, here I am in a wheelchair, and I and my, you know I'm kind of drooling, and and, and uh, you know I had aphasia also. And then when I spoke, it was oh, you like that, like uh-huh. that, and so I had to uh, overcome that. But uh, but then I just decided, hey, I gotta get get down there and do something, and that's what I did. I just set my mind to it. One of the one of the uh, uh, therapists there is just uh, uh, serendipity. I've known him for forty years, and he told me, don't any don't let anyone stop you, and don't ever. Ask people at the hospital if you'll recover because they'll just say, maybe, we don't know, because they don't give you that hope that you're looking for. I don't know if you came across that or not. Well, I'm, I think I'm one of the fortunate ones because my doctors actually told me I should recover 100%. And they didn't really? tell me. Yeah. They didn't tell me if it's tomorrow or in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So you know, yeah. they, you think that you can. No, they, they, they can't give you their home because, you you know, they're so uh, conscious of being sued. Well, the doctor said I was going to recover, and I haven't recovered. Mm-hmm. So they don't give you that hope that you really want. And you want that stuff. I'm going to be the same again. They won't give you that. One of the things I, I did, too, is I don't know if you know who Peter Levine is. Peter Levine wrote uh, a book, uh, Stronger After Stroke. Wonderful book. It's my Bible. Yeah. I read that, and, and, and he and that's where I got falling in love with the process. I fell in love with the process. Then I see that he said, you have to fall in love with the process. I go, great. Yeah, so... He always greets the people with, I've got good news and bad news. The good news, you recover. The bad news is you're going to have to work like hell to recover. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That, that really is good. Um, so I need to ask Patricia. In the process of writing the book and collaborating with Bill and your co-author, Sarah Parslow, well, how would you describe it? What did you get out of this whole experience? I think the reason we made the decision to braid together Bill's life story with his stroke story, it alternates chapters. So stroke, then born and raised in San Diego, waking up from stroke, going to school and getting his education going through recovery, so it alternates. And so what I really learned from working with Bill, and I I, I kind of know this, but it really became more vivid in my mind that we all as individuals can do so much for helping ourselves to be resilient in recovery. 
we can do it ourselves before we ever have a stroke, before we ever get a cancer or an illness diagnosis, before we have an accident. There are things that we can do, and as parents, we can do with our children to help them develop a mindset of resilience. And I think what Bill learned is he went through so much with his family growing up and lots of different hardships um, and the war and his family being divorced and the discrimination against uh, families with Mexican heritage. He went through a lot of turmoil. And I really believe that hardships like that can pull people down to a place that they never, ever really recover from. So his resilience wasn't just resilience after stroke. His resilience was something that was built within him by his mother, by his sisters, by himself as he grew up. And I think what I also learned in working with him is what it takes to just have a drive in life. Bill is a driven person. He doesn't give up. He doesn't go, oh, I can't do that. He goes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep practicing it. He did that before he ever had a stroke. So resilience was in his bloodstream. It was what he believed in. And I found that just absolutely fascinating. And one thing, Bill, also part of being driven, part of being resilient that I absolutely love is he gets bored. I'm bored. I don't want to do this anymore. He wants to do something new. I mean, why does he look like he's 65 when he's 85? It's because he just keeps moving. He's just like, oh. I'm bored with I'm bored with birthdays. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> exactly. And for me, those anniversaries. They're anniversaries, so you can have an anniversary of your 10th birthday if you want. No, that's a, that's a remembrance. I, okay. I don't want to remember. <laughs> you can have a remembrance instead of a birthday. But I think that's when, when you ask me what, what did I get out of um, this project, I think that's why the book is structured the way it is. We didn't want to just tell a stroke story. We wanted to tell a story of what it means to be a human being who is resilient. And I think that notion that resilience is built through our communication with other people. It's not sitting alone and doing it alone. It's communicating with our friends, our family, our providers. And I really learned that from Bill. And I... I, I love that. I, I, and, and for me, it fits so well with my whole belief in what I teach, is that our stories matter. Our stories make a difference in our lives. And so working with Bill has been pure joy. I really Thank miss you. him. I will call him up and say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and I know not to call too early because he'll be feeding the ducks and be too distracted. I have to wait a little bit later in the day. But, yeah, I, I just feel like I, I gained an amazing friend, and I love him knowing that you can be like he is at 85, that you can be, you know, this kind of person. And, and I love it. I love that. Thank yeah. you. One thing, Bill, that you said was, um, you know, you came home and you didn't really want to go and do anything, 
or go anywhere. So do you feel like you had a bout of depression there? What was it? What made you finally want to get out and start doing things? As you know, every, every stroke survivor gets depressed. And it's just a certain degree of depression. So when I was in the hospital, lying there, not being able to get up by myself, not being able to do anything, I was depressed. But what I do is I would take 10 minutes to scream and holler in my pillow to get rid of that depression. Then I go, okay, I can hardly wait till the morning when I can go do therapy. And then again, I was lucky because I had a friend there, and he'd come in and give me an extra hour of therapy before my regular schedule therapy. So I would take, I still get depressed. I can be watching TV and see, uh, you know, a little puppy dog getting hurt or something, and I'll start crying. And, you know, I was a crier. I don't know if you were a crier or not which happens to a lot of people that have strokes on, on the left side. So I've learned to probably compartmentalize. So I get depressed every once in a while, but I know that I'm getting depressed. So I can live with that. So, so when I came home, I took a day to be depressed. Okay, I'm going to get try to get rid of some of these pressure. Why am I depressed? Well, I'm depressed so that I can't even wiggle my toe. I can't lift my hand up. I can't grab anything. And I'm living here with my mother, and I was moved in with her to take care of her. Now she was taking care of me, and which she thoroughly enjoyed, by the way. <laughs> I, was her little, I was her little Billy again. And... Uh, so anyway, but I would so I would take a take time out to be depressed. Mm-hmm. And that first day, I I took the whole day. I remember and just sat in the chair and say, "Where am I going? What am I going to do? Am I going to try to go back to work? Am I am I going to be an invalid? No. Nope. What I have to do is learn to get up off my ass. That's, that's the first thing I have to do. And so after four months, finally, I did get up up by rear end, and, and I've been moving ever since. So, um, yes, I gave myself, I, I didn't call it depressed, but I did pity parties, and I put no, a no. time limit on them, whether it was an hour or day, or sometimes it was even two days, and I more or less didn't even question anything. I just, like, ate chocolate and sat in front of the Hallmark channel and watched movies. But, <laughs> but it's the right thing. By, see, I tell people that. Put a time limit on I took 10 minutes in the hospital every night to scream in my – but I took a day when I got home, and then I – so now I get depressed once in a while, and I just go outside and scream or, or uh, you know, or go buy an ice cream. absolutely I mean you have to it's it's kind of grieving also you have to give yourself that permission because if you don't you will really end in a depression I think that's really important Bill do you have any a, a word of wisdom or something that you feel is really important that you want to tell other survivors yeah Get up off of your ass and do something. I like that. Patricia, 
Do you have any words of wisdom or anything you've learned while doing this that uh, you feel would be uh, good for a survivor to hear or uh, even a, a physician or nurse or somebody? Yeah, I think I come back always to communication. I think sometimes the, the depression that comes with accidents and illness, um, disease even, uh, really people begin to isolate themselves. They, they feel very sad. They, they, they really want that pity party. And I believe that the, you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. And to be resilient requires you, people aren't born with it. It's something that you develop, and it's something that you want to create in communicating with other people. And, and asking for help and enjoying that help, I think a lot of us have a lot of trouble asking other people for help. Absolutely. You know, and so recovering from stroke or anything really requires your willingness to reach out, communicate, and accept the support from other people. So I think that's, that would be my key message. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hand in Hand Show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to keep the discussion going, please join Stroke Focus the social media website dedicated to stroke survivors and caregivers. The website address is https colon backslash backslash www.strokefocus.net Stroke Focus is S-T-R-O-K-E-F-O-C-U-S Stroke Focus is a part of Wohala, which in Mandarin means, I have survived. If you wish to be a part of the show or would like to be interviewed as part of the show, please contact us at contact at strokefocus.net.